Hello, and welcome to the Sound of History podcast. My name is Nick. Do I really want to claim what I say is like belonging to me? <laughs> well, you haven't for the past like four episodes. And welcome to the Sound of History podcast. My name is Mika. <laughs> and this is a music history podcast where I try and teach music history to Mika. Yay. <laughs> All right. Well, Mika is the host now. Mika is the host now. Boom, 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 boom. Okay. <laughs> this is a very important one today. They're all important. Do what you, you know about? what I'm going to plug? No, there not a clue. two things that I'm incredibly passionate about this week. Hold on. Let me think. This is weird. Normally, I'm not the one taking long pauses that I have to edit out later. <laughs> You're always passionate about the cats. You're not going to plug them. I do really love that one. Is it music related? Yes. Is it Fleetwood Mac? It is not. Everyone already knows that I had a very late discovery of Fleetwood Mac. Um, however, I've righted my wrongs. It is Mr. Wives, though. It 1000% is Mr. Wives. Mr. <laughs> Wives put out their newest album. It is an absolute masterpiece. I cannot shut up about it. And She's you need no to listen to it anymore. absolutely right now. It can't be Mr. Wives. She's not a wife. She wasn't a wife when they started the band. What's the other one? The other, the runner up is the video that the Dry Guys put out. Oh. <laughs> where they're reenacting the dramatic scenes in Twilight. And Keith Hoppersberger's interpretation of Bella Swan is absolutely breathtaking and is an inspiration to me artistically. <laughs> that doesn't bode well for this podcast. <laughs> what? <laughs> anyway, very excited. But in all seriousness, check out Super Bloom, um, which is the name of the album that Mr. Wives just did. And um, also check out the Try Guys dramatic reenactment of Twilight because... <laughs> I've watched it twice already today, and I am probably going to watch it again before we go to sleep. <laughs> I love it that much. <laughs> all right, then. Is that all? Is Mika no longer the host now? Mm. Going to plug Taylor Swift's new album? No. It's fair. No one needs to know about that <laughs> from me. Everyone already knows about that. Yeah, there's absolutely nothing I can add to that conversation that would be productive. But, like, for real, Mr. Wise. Okay. It's the best. It's the best album put out this week, and I 100% stand behind that. All right, then. Or last week, I guess I should say. Okay. This is Mika is no longer the host now. Okay, cool. <laughs> so, do you remember? Well, first of all, we took a week off. Yes, because it was the birthday boy's birthday. It was a lot of people's birthdays. It was. <laughs> Not it's just my mine. mom's birthday and m the love of my life's birthday and my husband's birthday. <laughs> <laughs> it was Madison's birthday who was on the last episode. She was. It's a good week. So we had a lot of things going on along with work and other stuff. So just couldn't get an episode out. But we're back. And this will go out on its regular time if I remember to edit it. Did you miss me? You I specifically? Yes. Me you specifically, me. I did. Yeah, I know. Always miss you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you remember about our last episode? I rem 
remember that Madison and Blake were there and <laughs> I had a little bit of alcohols and <laughs> we talked about Broadway. It was those guys who like mm-hmm. saved Broadway from the Great Depression. The yep. three brothers with the weird names. Well, well they weren't they that weird. Yeah. The Schuberts. Yeah. JJ, Sam, and Lee. The Mr. Schuberts instead <laughs> of the Sister Schuberts. Yep. So that was our first part two episode. That was the first time we went back to a subject. We're going to do that a few different times throughout this podcast, but that was the very first time we did it. So, you know, breaking new ground there. It was worthwhile. Very cool. And we talked about the Great Depression and how that affected Broadway. That was less cool. (laughs) We talked about how Hollywood kept stealing all the talent. And then we talked about the syndicate versus the Schuberts. So this week... We're going to talk about two brothers who are incredibly influential in both Broadway and music in general during this time period. Do you remember who we're talking about? Nope. Ira and George Gershwin. Oh, okay. The Gershwin brothers. Right, because we talked about Gershwin Theater. Yes. What did, where did we, no, we talked about Lyric Theater, which is where, which is we, where saw we saw Cursed Child. Yes, and but I th- there's, oh, there's got to be a Gershwin. Have we been there? There 100% is, but like, have um, we gotten I don't to go see a show there? Let us look that up. Gershwin Man, shows. Theater. My sister also had her birthday within the last two weeks, and she's amazing and super cool. And her friends surprised her with a trip to New York City, which they had a great time. But like, dang, she really needs to go back because she couldn't go do all like the... Do Broadway any of the fun New York stuff and museums, and she ate and she took pictures and saw all the cool stuff, which is cool. We have not been to the Gershwin since 2003. It has hosted Wicked. Mm, yeah. So if we want to go see Wicked on Broadway, we can we see do want to go see Wicked on Broadway always. Yeah. And also hosted uh, Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, and Count Basie in 1975, oh. which would have been an insane show. I want to go see that. <laughs> Let's <laughs> go bad. to that one. Kay. You think we can still get tickets? I, d- I doubt it. It's sold out. Probably. With all those big names. Exactly. Okay. Next time. <laughs> Next time they're all playing together. I'll follow it on, I'll follow the theater on Instagram and um, be able to keep track of, <laughs> of what shows they have okay. coming up. Let me know. It'll just be wicked. <laughs> for the next 10 years. Forever. <laughs> <laughs> so Ira Gershwin was the oldest of four siblings, and he was born on December 6, 1896, in Brooklyn, New York. His parents were Russian Jewish immigrants. Growing up, he was always interested in the written word and spent a lot of his time reading, and he also played an important role in several school newspapers and magazines. He was apparently really shy, but very smart. He attended Townsend Harris High School, which was a New York City school for intellectually gifted students. Fancy. Yeah. After high school, he briefly attended the City College of New York, but dropped out. I don't really know why. I guess it just school wasn't for him. Which happens with a lot of really smart people. So after two years, he dropped out of college, and Ira started to do odd jobs until his brother, who had started to make a name for himself, asked him to write lyrics to some compositions. Ira make wor- a name for himself as a, as a composition? Yeah. Okay. We'll get to him. We'll talk about him a little bit. But since Ira's older, we're talking about him a little bit first. Well, that's um, 
a very interesting take that you have, little <laughs> baby boy. <laughs> it's just linear. It's not anything else. Mm-hmm. No, it's that one most important. Ira worked as a cashier in the Turkish baths that his father owned in 1918. I don't know what that means. I don't really know either. I've heard the phrase before. Hey guys, hey the nine houses. of you, will you will you tell us what that that means? We could <laughs> Google it, but you know, like we want to interact. Knows. Yes, and let us know on social media, Twitter.com/slash Sound of History with an underscore. Yeah. If, you, if you've been to a Turkish bathhouse, we want first-hand experience only. Yes, please, <laughs> please tell if us. If you haven't this. been, then go to one and then tell us how it was like. Yeah, fun quarantine adventure. Go to a bathhouse, a communal <laughs> bathhouse. You can also teach us about COVID then. So that was in 1918, and that was when Ira and George, his brother, first took a stab at working together. Did something important happen in 1918? Um, probably. Is that a date I'm supposed to know? Um, 1918 pandemic. Whoa. It's the 1918 flu pandemic, apparently. Cool. I just had a tingling sense. Sure. Spidey sense. So they wrote the song, The Real American Folk Song is a Rag, which appeared in a musical called Ladies First. Do you want to hear that song? I do want to hear that song. All right. Here's the real American folk music. Crazy for you. There's a lot going on right now. It's a rag, rag time. You remember rag time. That's what this song is. Seems really easy to write lyrics back then because there weren't a lot. There weren't a lot of lyrics. Nice tapping in the background. I like it. That was the real American folk song as a rag. That was the first time they took a stab at working together. George wrote the music. Ira wrote the lyrics. Ira didn't want to build a career off of the success of his already somewhat famous brother, so he adopted the pen name Arthur Francis, which was the first names of their other two siblings, and wrote the song under that name. No one's going to figure that one out. (laughs) Ira used this pen name to write the lyrics for a few other shows that appeared on Broadway like Two Little Girls in Blue in 1921. Isn't that the the Shining or something? Like the twins at the end of the hallway? <laughs> I don't know if they're wearing blue. I think they're wearing blue. <laughs> uh, that was produced by Abraham Erlanger, who is the head of the syndicate, who we talked about last week. Tie Just ins. a bad guy. <laughs> I'm a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> Copyright, we can't sing that. I'm not... <laughs> no, like, listen. That's I'm just not how I get you to stop to singing it. and disrupting the show. <laughs> His lyrics were very well received, and he was able to enter into a career in show business based off of just that show alone. Good for him. By 1924, Ira dropped the pseudonym and teamed up with his brother George for a longtime partnership that made them the most sought out playwrights in Broadway. George Gershwin, 
Now we're talking about him. Gershwin of the Gershwin Theater. <laughs> yes, George Gershwin. George Gershwin of the Gershwin Theater. Cool. Was born on September 26, 1898. He was named after his grandfather, who was an army mechanic. But his birth certificate says his name was Jacob. So I don't really know <laughs> what's going on there. <laughs> Around the time he started to become a professional musician, he changed his name to George, and his last name changed from Gershwin to Gershwin. Just to be a little bit more American and accepted by the American mainstream. I like the V. The rest of the family soon followed that spelling and started going by Gershwin instead. I wish that my family had done that with like, <laughs> my maiden name, because it's just a hot German mess. Yeah. Sorry, Grandpa. <laughs> the Gershwins grew up mostly in the Yiddish theater district and spent many nights watching plays in the theaters in their neighborhood. George would sometimes appear on stage as an extra in some of the shows. So, like, from a very early age, he's interested in Broadway and musical theater. George, almost the complete opposite of Ira, hated school and didn't do well in it, which kind of happens when you hate it. You can't successfully do things that you hate. Why are you teaching I'm the people this? <laughs> I'm saying as a kid, when you don't want to do it, you're probably not going to do it Try well. Try hard and learn in school, children. It came as a, su- as a complete surprise when his parents learned that George taught himself to play the piano. George didn't care at all about music until he was about 10 years old when he heard his friend's violin recital and was captivated by it. That's adorable because if you're captivated by a 10-year-old playing violin, (laughs) you have to be really passionate about music. Or really in love with that friend because it was a female friend. Ooh, little crush. So he started practicing on the piano that his parents bought for Ira, which was a relief to Ira because he hated playing the piano. Wait, who are we talking about? Talking about George. George Gershwin still? He also has an Ira? What are you... We were talking about Ira Gershwin, and now we have transitioned to talk about George Gershwin. I don't think I realized that (laughs) Ira's last name was Gershwin. (laughs) They're the Gershwin brothers, which... (laughs) I, I don't know. I thought, like, the Gershwin guy came in, like later and and partnered with I don't know wait who wrote the musicals <laughs> the, the Gershwin brothers George <laughs> yes oh George and Ira Gershwin they're the Gershwins <laughs> okay you just haven't been paying attention <laughs> not, well I'm paying attention to the story just not the players <laughs> okay yet yeah, they are brothers Ira is the older brother George is the younger brother they're both named Gershwin <laughs> Gershwin 1 and Gershwin 2. (laughs) Gershwin. (laughs) Around the end of high school, Gershwin (laughs) 2. Honestly, I'm (laughs) tracking. (laughs) George met Charles Hambitzer, who is a pianist in the Beethoven Symphony Orchestra. Charles became George's teacher and musical mentor until Charles died in 1918. Charles taught George unconventional ways of playing the piano that George really gravitated toward. Was it the syncopation that we heard in that one song? Probably a little bit of like ragtime influence. But it also probably was like more popular style and not just like, you know, Beethoven and Mozart. I'd say they were pretty popular. Yeah, 
Charles wrote about George, quote, I have a new pupil who will make his mark if anybody will. The boy is a genius. Oh, sweet, supportive. At age 15, George, Gershwin number two, Gershwin two, dropped out of high school to be a song plugger on Tin Pan Alley. Do you remember what song pluggers were? And do you remember what Tin Pan Alley was? Mm, a little pop quiz no. for you in the middle of this. Oh, I don't. Is Tin Pan Alley where everyone was playing the piano? Basically, yeah. It's where all the song publishers Yeah, and everyone was mad because yes. there was too much piano sound. I don't think people were mad, but it sounded like one reporter said it sounded like people just banging tin pans. Yeah. Because so, it was like echoing because everyone had to have their windows open because mm-hmm. it was so hot. What's a song pusher? Song plugger. They were the people, we talked about this a little bit in ragtime, where, because back before like recorded music was hugely popular, you had basically the, what's it called? Just the sheet music. You had sheet music. So someone would go into a store and be like, this sheet music looks interesting, but what does it sound like? You would give it to the person who like sat at a piano and then they would kind of like demonstrate the song for the In the store. Yes. Or if there was like a song that people really wanted to, like the owner really wanted to sell, you would just have your song plugger there playing that song and people would be like, I want that one. And you're like, well, here it is. That's what song pluggers did. Okay. They plugged songs. Okay. Oh, well, I had this written. Basically, he would demonstrate songs for customers so they could hear it and decide if they wanted to buy the sheet music or not. I have a proposition. Uh-oh. Instead of Gershwin 1 and 2, um, my mind is just thinking of pickles. And so oh, I want to call them Gherkin 1 and Gherkin 2. No, I refuse. <laughs> they will be George and Ira, and you will like it. Ira Gherkin and George Gherkin. The Gherkin Brothers. <laughs> Of Gherkin Theater. <laughs> Where Wicked is, she's green. <laughs> it all connects. It's a conspiracy. So George was a song plugger for about three years while honing his skills at composing and also worked as a rehearsal pianist for Broadway performers. So he would just like, they needed to rehearse a song. They were. Oh, I know whatever. what a rehearsal pianist is. Okay. okay. Well, Her I mean, you didn't even know Ira was a Gershwin, so I can't be too careful. Excuse <laughs> you, Gherkin. <laughs> he wrote this oh, uh, during these three years of like doing both of those jobs. He wrote the song "When You Want 'Em, You Can Get 'Em. When You Have 'Em, You Don't Want 'Em," which was super popular. Is it about girlfriends? Probably. But then he wrote "Swanee," which Al Jolson Al Jolson performed and recorded in 1919. And that ge- and that song gave George his first glance of stardom. Do you remember Al Jolson? Talked about him plenty. You should by now. I remember us doing a special on him, but I don't know which one he was. He was the creepy guy who we watched the blackface video of him singing oh, about yeah, his mammy. I I really hate him. <laughs> just just for him going mammy in blackface, <laughs> it's really terrifying. Well, here is Swanee. I think it might be. The one performed by Al Jolson. Is it also in blackface? I don't think it's a like actual video of a performance. It's just Al Jolson singing. His face looks like a mask. Weird. Okay. I've been away from you a long time. Why don't we watch the the Ju- Judy Garland? Because Al Jolson was the one who made it popular. We're trying to do this to work here. This was the song that made George blow up. 
sung by this man. I think we need to do that. I think that's already happened just based on time. <laughs> no one knows who he is anymore. Judging by the fact Suck that we've, that. we've talked about him at least eight times and you still don't remember him. So <laughs> I, think, I think he's already deep. Well, that's Swanee. I wasn't listening, but it didn't captivate me. All right, that's fair. From 1920 to 1924, George would compose for an annual production. Much better. After one of those shows, the band leader in the pit, Paul Whiteman, who was a massive jazz band leader, and he was actually the first person who hired Bing Crosby into his band, asked George to write a song that would give jazz some respectability as a true musical form. (laughs) According to legend, George completely forgot about that request until he saw a newspaper headline that said Paul Whiteman's next show would feature a composition by George Gershwin. So George scrambled to meet the deadline and wrote what might be his best-known work, Rhapsody in Blue. Oh. Yep, here's Rhapsody in Blue. I just think it's funny. (laughs) Just reading the newspaper, I'm like, oh, crap. (laughs) I was supposed to write this. And then just churned out this massive hit. Stinking artists. Artists be like that sometimes. <laughs> I don't know who's singing this one. Played by Libor Pisek in the Slovak National Philharmonic Orchestra. Yeah, I don't think that there's words. I don't know this. What? I don't know. I know the name. Like, I've heard Rhapsody You don't know what note is coming next? No. What? I don't, I don't listen to this kind of music ever. I don't either. So, like, why do I know this? I don't know. I mean, I know it's, like, very popular. I know a lot of people know it because I know that name. Like, I've heard Rhapsody in Blue, but... I, like, if someone played this for me, there's no way. It's 14 million views. Was it in, like, Fantasia? Let's look it up. Like, why do I know this from when I was a kid? Like, I'm not that cultured. Your parents are pretty cultured. Yeah, they are. My parents are not, so... No offense, mom and dad, but they're not going to be playing this music. Right? It's so like, interesting. You know, this is way better than than the than the Al Jolson song. Really? Yes. Yeah, I don't know why you would know this. I'm not seeing anything that was like it was in something you would know. Oh, wait. It was used as a segment from the film Fantasia 2000. Boom! I guessed it! In which the piece is used as the lyrical framing for a stylized animation set drawn uh, in the style of were, famed illustrator Al Hirschfeld. Is it when they were dancing around, like all the cleaning stuff was dancing no, around? I don't know. I think like buckets and mops are dancing around or something like that. Brian Wilson, the leader of the Beach Boys, has said on several occasions that Rhapsody in Blue is one of his favorite pieces. Wow. 
He first heard it when he was two years old and recalls that he loved it. According to biographer Peter Ames Carlin, it was an influence on his smile album. That's, hold on, we need to go back to a two-year-old hearing this <laughs> and loving it because that's adorable. I can't wait to talk about the Beach Boys because Brian Wilson is insane. He's a musical genius, You could sure. probably do that one right now, couldn't you? <laughs> Maybe. There's a lot of misinformation, though, because he was, he's gone, he's lost his mind a little bit in later years. So I read like a biography. He wrote an autobiography, but apparently it's not factual at all because it was like coerced from his therapist at the time who had like an unhealthy amount of control over him and like basically talked him into writing this piece that was like my therapist saved my life and he's the best person in the whole world and then he got married and his wife was like yeah this person's horrible and like kicked the therapist out and like he's been doing a lot better recently from what i've seen nice yeah okay anyway Rhapsody in Blue became his signature song and showcased his talent for blending different musical styles in new ways. So, like, he could encompass classical and jazz and ragtime and just kind of, like, fuse all of them together into one new sound. Throughout all this, George continued to compose and write music for Broadway and off-Broadway shows. In 1924, George and Ira teamed up and became the Gershwins. The Gherkins. And they were the dominant Broadway songwriters of the jazz and Great Depression era. Their first show together was a musical comedy named Lady Be Good. I don't think I know that. It had their first hit song when they wrote for Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Here is the hit song called Lady Be Good or Oh Lady Be Good. I can't think of if I've heard this because all that goes in oh, my mind by is Ella Fitzgerald, by the way. Lady. Listen to my tale of woe, it's terribly sad but true. All dressed up, no place to go, each evening I'm awfully blue. I must win some handsome guy, can't go on like this. I could blossom out, I know. With somebody just like you, so oh. So I think it's weird that these big artists cover like Broadway songs. Why? And then I think of Hamilton. I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> they're doing that now. But you don't hear like John Legend singing "Wicked." You could. You could, but you don't. The, the point isn't talent. talent level. The point is popularity. Like, not everyone knows the songs from Wicked. Well, I mean, it's different now with so many different, like, forms of entertainment versus then when this yeah. is an extension of, like, what's been yeah. entertainment for years. Like, can you imagine Ariana Grande putting out on her album just, like, a cover of a Broadway song that's not Hamilton? Wasn't she in Greece? She might have been. Or so, like, yeah. Or like Post Malone. Not Post Malone. I could see him covering a song from Jersey Boys because that would just be Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons. See, it's cool. Okay, that's She's Oh Lady Be Good by I Ella just Fitzgerald. I am so excited about her, always. 
She is an up-and-coming star. She's going to be big one day. People already knew that George was a master composer, but people started to realize that Ira was an incredibly gifted lyricist as well. His lyrics were witty and fit the songs perfectly. He used inventive wordplay that others weren't using at the time. According to one biography on the brothers, quote, When the Gershwins teamed up to write songs for Lady Be Good, the American musical found its native idiom. End quote. I feel like that's not... I feel like that's an intro sentence. That's not the meat of the situation. I want to know what else they say. Well, that's all I wrote. But, I mean, it's basically just, like... I don't know what that means. The American musical basically, like, found what it's supposed to be, is what it's saying. Like, in them together, what they wrote, it's like, yes, that is... Because, like, before this, there was a lot of copying British theater. There was a lot of Shakespeare. There was a lot of that stuff. So this is like, no, this is what we're doing. We are doing... Like, this is American theater. Good music, witty lyrics. (laughs) Yes. I like it. Because who are the... You're not going to remember. But then the first Broadway episode, we talked about those two British dudes. Mm. Am I supposed to know their names? My mind just keeps going to Rogers and Hammerstein, which it's not nope. that. <laughs> like, I don't know. There, there were those two guys who wrote very like satirical in mm-hmm. stuff. I can't remember. Gilbert and Sullivan? Sure. I don't remember. But those two guys. So like, mm-hmm. this is America's version of that. This is the American the Gherkins. theater. Gherkins. We're American. They were probably the most powerful American duo in the history of Broadway and America's answer. Oh, here we go. It's America's answer to Gilbert and Sullivan. So I was right. That's impressive. Yes. <laughs> that was months ago. Yeah. How yeah. do you have names just <laughs> flopping around in your head? I mean, I spend a lot of time writing these, so they kind of get drilled in. The Gershwins didn't stop at one show. They followed it up with shows called OK in 1926 Funny Face in 1927 <laughs> and Strike Up the Band in also in 1927. Can you imagine Funny Face writing two Broadway shows in one year? Yes, I can actually. How? Because the stuff just gets stuck in your head and you can't stop. And then like when you get tired of one thing or you have a conflicting idea that doesn't go with the first idea, you have to start writing the second idea. Like I, But yes. to have two complete plays written in yep. one year. It's crazy. It's impressive. It took Lin-Manuel Miranda like eight years to write Hamilton and like six years to write his first show. It's crazy. It's just crazy to me. What was his first show? In the Heights. He wrote it while he was in college. And Why did I not know that? And he also won a Tony Award for Best Musical for that show. I absolutely can no longer call myself a person <laughs> interested in theater. Yeah, you can. No. Nope. I should have known that. Because the guy who played Washington and Hamilton also played in In the Heights. Well, we gonna, we gonna watch that. And they were in a freestyle group together too. Him and the guy who played Washington. Because they would apparently just freestyle backstage and Lynn was already in this group and he's like, dude, you'd be perfect for it. So I then they just joined I cannot believe I didn't know that that was him. I genuinely cannot believe that I didn't know that. I am so sorry to <laughs> all of my friends from high school. I've let you down. <laughs> anyway, in the mid-1920s, George took a trip to Paris and lived there for a little bit. While there, he applied to study with legendary composers. Hey, wait, who? George. Okay. The guy who wrote the music. 
Yeah, Gershwin number two. Gherkin number two. <laughs> Got it. I just didn't hear which one it was. So he like he was living in Paris and he tried to study under some of the like big name composers who were living there, but they all turned him down because they're French. <laughs> one of the prospective tutors, Maurice Ravel, wrote in his rejection letter, "Quote." Why become a second-rate Ravel when you're already a first-rate Gershwin? So basically, they were like, dude, you're already good. Like, You don't need to learn from us. You don't need to learn our techniques. You already got your own. You're you already can always great. learn. Yeah, but they're like, we don't want you just trying to like mimic what we're doing. Like, You're doing your own thing, and you're doing a really good job of it. Just keep doing that. That's basically what he was saying. So it sounds like those composers felt like they had nothing to teach George. While living in Paris... George wrote the show An American in Paris, which wasn't well-received at its first performance, but became a standard in Europe and America and led to a very successful Gene Kelly movie in the 50s. That's why I've heard of that one. Like, I've heard the name. I couldn't tell you anything about it other than what I just read, but, like, I know that name, An American in Paris. In the late 20s and early 30s, the Gershwins kept writing musicals and kept adding to their impressive list of songs that became Broadway standards. In 1931, Ira became the first lyricist to be awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Drama when the Gershwins musical Of The I Sing became the first musical to win that prize. That makes me happy. In 1934, George, after staying for a bit with an author in South Carolina, wrote what might be his most ambitious project of all time, Porgy and Bess. I've heard of that one, too. It was based on a novel called Porgy by DeBose Hayward, which who was the author he stayed with in South Carolina. Oh, well, that makes sense. (laughs) It blended the boundaries between musical and opera. Ooh. The critics had a really hard time with it. They knew it was a masterpiece, but they couldn't quite figure out what standards to judge it by, since it transcended so many different genres. Whether or not they enjoyed (laughs) it. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, that's fair. George called it a folk opera, and it was considered one of the most important American musical works of the 20th century. I want to, like, listen and watch some of these, because it's all stuff that I've heard of. Like, from way long ago, and, like, I just want to know. Like, I want to watch it. It's also crazy when you listen to some of this stuff, and, like, when you listen to it. Like, this is the problem a lot of modern people have with, like, the Beatles. You listen to it, and it doesn't sound that interesting. Like, it sounds like a lot of stuff you've heard before. It sounds Because everything is derivative. Because they started it, and everyone else, like, they were the pioneers of it. So, like... I'm sure if you listen to Porgy and Bess, you'd be like, I mean, this just kind of sounds like musical theater. This doesn't sound groundbreaking. But then you're like, these were the first people to do some of this stuff. Like, this was the first time this happened. And then it's just different. Anyway, one theater historian said about Porgy and Bess, quote, It wasn't a musical work per se, and it wasn't a drama per se. It elicited response from both music and drama critics, but the work has sort of always been outside category. So basically, no one was like, we don't know what to do with this, but we know it's really good. <laughs> the first production, which in, which was introduced in Boston before going to Broadway, featured a cast of classically trained African-American musicians, which was a bold casting choice for the time. That's so cool! Yep. It follows Porgy, 
who was a poor African-American living on the streets of Charleston, South Carolina, trying to rescue Bess, the love of his life, from her violent lover and drug dealer. We have to find this. <laughs> yep. I think DeBose Hayward, the guy who wrote it, was an African-American, like the guy who wrote the novel, I think. I don't know. I didn't really look into him that much. But it, do you know about like the tradition of Broadway shows not premiering on Broadway? Like, especially during this time, like, now they might do off-Broadway, but during this time, like, if you had a show that a producer's like, I want to play this on Broadway, they would get it all together and then play somewhere else in the Northeast first, like, Boston, Philadelphia, somewhere up there, just to, like, yeah, work out the kinks, figure everything out, and then premiere it on Broadway. Here's one of the more popular songs called Summertime from the show. Summertime, living's easy. That's best. That's beautiful. summertime I was pretty sure you knew that song but not the not that version of it because that was a more like slowed opera version of it her voice is so stunning yeah and clear oh, I wish I could sing like that <laughs> after Porgy and Bess George and Ira moved out to Hollywood to start working on films and George was recorded to do the music for a new Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movie called Shall We Dance the soundtrack alone was over an hour and a half in length and took him months to complete. That's awesome. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. For the last 10 years of his life, George was in a committed relationship with a woman named Kay Smith, though they were never married. She even left her husband to commit herself to her relationship with George. It is said by Kay's granddaughter that they never married because George's mother didn't like that she wasn't Jewish. She was also a composer and constantly helped George with his music and collaborated with him and Ira. That's cute. Meanwhile, Ira married Leonore Strunsky in 1926, and they stayed married until Ira passed away. So she was Jewish. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> in 1937, George started to complain about blinding headaches and said he constantly smelled burning rubber. That's not good. He tried to perform a concert, but suffered lack of coordination and blackouts while trying to play. Cool. 
He was still focused on writing music for films while living with Ira and Leonor. Leonor? Leonor. In their rented Beverly Hills house. Then, on July 9th, he collapsed and was rushed to a hospital where he slipped into a coma. Mm-hmm. Only then did the doctor start to think that he might have a brain tumor. Oh, yeah. Just just then. <laughs> All the stuff that he did before that was just him making stuff up. Normally, I wouldn't go into this much detail about like someone's death, but I think this really shows his importance to the American art scene, so I'm going to tell the story. It became clear that he needed brain surgery. So his friends and family called up a groundbreaking neurosurgeon named Harvey Cushing, who had been retired for three years at that point and lived in Boston. Harvey, the neurosurgeon, recommended a different neurosurgeon who wasn't retired named Walter Dandy, who is now, along with Harvey Cushing, considered one of the fathers of neurosurgery. So these two guys, along with one other guy, were like, doing groundbreaking stuff in neurosurgery. And his friends were like, well, you know, let's just call him up. But Dandy was currently fishing with the governor of Maryland. (laughs) So naturally, George's close friends called the White House and got them to send out the Coast Guard to bring Dr. Dandy back to shore. What? They then chartered a plane from Newark to get him out to California as quickly as possible. Unfortunately, all of that wasn't enough and George had to have surgery right away before Dandy could get there. They couldn't wait any longer. So the regular non-Coast Guard-hunted doctors performed surgery on July 11th and removed a large brain tumor, now thought to be glioblastoma. Glioblastoma? Glioblastoma? I honestly don't know if it's about neurology. I just block it out because (laughs) I hate it. Fair enough. It's literally the worst. It's a guessing game, as far as I can tell. Unfortunately, it wasn't enough, and George passed away later that day at the age of 38. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'd like to clarify that I don't think neurosurgery is a guessing game. I just hate neurology. (laughs) But holy cow, that's so young. Yeah. I just think it's like, this dude was so important that they were like, the White White House like, yeah, send the Coast Guard. We got to get this guy better. How do you call the (laughs) White House? Hello, operator. Will you please connect me to the president? Like, <laughs> I have what? a friend who needs surgery. What? Can you just imagine being that doctor, too, and the Coast Guard is rolling up and be like, hey, we need you right now. George Gershwin needs brain surgery. That literally sounds like an episode of Grey's Anatomy. The suddenness of all of this made people all over the world absolutely shocked. His work was known and loved everywhere, and people couldn't believe that he was gone, especially Mm. so young so quickly. Mm. His friend and celebrated writer John O'Hara said, quote, George Gershwin died on July 11th, 1937, but I don't have to believe it if I don't want to, which kind of summed up the attitude of everyone towards his death. After his brother's death, Ira entered into a sort of retirement and did not work on any music for three years. But he came out of retirement and worked on a few more shows and movies. Good for him. He worked on a Broadway show in 1946 called Park Avenue that Mm -hmm. turned out to be a massive failure. And it would be his farewell to Broadway. Mm. He said after that show, quote, I'm reading a couple of stories for possible musicalization, if there is such a word. But I hope I don't like them, as I think I deserve a long rest. 
which I think is just such an artist way to yeah, say exactly. it. Exactly. I think that's brilliant because it's like if he reads it and he's like, well, crap, like this has to be. Crap, I love it. I yeah, have like, to do I it. Yeah, like I have to do that. But if he reads it, he's like, well, this sucks. <laughs> he's like, good, I don't have to do it. Like that's just such like a writer way of <laughs> thinking mm-hmm. about it. Iris seemed to enjoy getting out of the spotlight in his later years. He worked to publish some of George's songs that had been lost or discarded. He also enjoyed listening to music really, really loudly, which his wife hated. Same. (laughs) As in, I like listening to it really loudly. Well, your wife doesn't hate it. My wife? (laughs) I have a wife? On August 17th, 1983, Ira passed away at the age of 86, and his wife passed away about 10 years later in 1991. Apparently, Ira loved listening to things, whether it be music or not. He found joy in just general sounds. He wrote in his diary once, quote, Heard in a day, an elevator's purr, telephones ring, telephones buzz, a baby's moans, a shout of delight, a screech from a flat wheel, horse honks, a horse voice, a tinkle, a match scratch on sandpaper, a deep resounding boom of dynamiting in the impending subway, iron hooks on the gutter. He would have loved ASMR. (laughs) I just think that's so sweet. He's just like writing a journal of sounds he heard that he liked and stuck with him. Like, that's insane. What's a horse honk? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I really would have loved to hear him commenting on ASMR. The Gershwins were wildly successful and supremely talented. Together, they wrote 12 shows and four films. Not to, win- not to mention the work they did separately without each other. Their, lig- their legacy can't be overstated. It is estimated that the money George made from his songs during his lifetime made him the highest paid composer of all time. They were giants. Still? Yeah. Now? Yeah. Damn. They were giants of the American music scene and created so many Broadway standards that are still sung today. And that is the Gershwins. The Gherkins. <laughs> Yeah, they were massively important. I don't know if I even like did them justice in that episode with like how actually important they were for theater during this period. Wow. I'm serious. Let's like watch Porgy and Bess. Let's dig into some of this okay. old theater. All right. I want to watch. I've always wanted to watch. I forgot what it was called, but Scott Joplin's play. He was the king of ragtime, and like in his later years, he wrote. He wrote like that play that was for African Americans, like it was an African American show, and it was just wasn't accepted because this was the early 1900s, and the critics were like, "We don't know what to do with this," and it was just like completely lost. But yeah, it was like it completely like no one paid any attention to it until like 50 years later, and then it won all these like Nobel awards and like Pulitzer prizes and stuff. Tremonisha. That one about that girl. Yes, about Tremonisha. Who was thrown into a beehive <laughs> and had Did to be saved. What? <laughs> anyway, that's the Gershwins. Gergens. Okay. I think I'm debating because mm-hmm. we still have the race records two episodes to do. Mm-hmm. But we just don't want to talk about it. It's not that. <laughs> it's that we have a bonus episode mm. that we need to sneak in somewhere. It's mm-hmm. on Irving mm-hmm. Berlin. We should do it next. That's what I was thinking. We should definitely do it he's next. He's massive in Broadway, too. Yes. So, like, he's massive in everything. Like, he's, like, 
he just takes over the early 1900s. But next, I feel like since he's Broadway, we should do it after Broadway, and then we'll have the two race records, and then we'll have the Bing Crosby special, and mm. then we're out of the war era. That sounds absolutely like a phenomenal plan. Okay, we'll do. Okay, so next Yay! week we're gonna do Irving Berlin. Yay! We're gonna do a little bonus episode on Irving. And Irving is a bonus because, like, I always knew I wanted to talk about him, but he did so stinking much, I didn't know where to put him. I was so like, excited. He could fit into, like, every episode we're doing, basically, besides mm-hmm. race records. Like, he could fit in wherever. <laughs> it wouldn't bat an eye. So he has to be his own thing. I can't wait. All right. Well, that was the Gershwins. Hope Gershwins. you guys liked it. I like them. And hopefully we will be back next week. We will. Okay. We'll do, we'll do that next week. Goodbye.